0: Cinematologist podcast. I'm Neil Fox and with me as ever is Dario Lenares. Hi Dario.
1: Hey Neil, how's it going? Great to speak to you.
0: Yeah, it's really good to speak to you. It's uh, the end of another busy week but uh, looking forward to a nice weekend and uh, yeah, looking forward to uh, taping this episode.
1: Yeah, um, a long-awaited episode, um, I grant you. I mean we've had a couple of full starts with this one but it's uh, it, it's one I think that sort of represents one of the wings of the, of the cinematologist in terms of perhaps bringing films that are less well known and filmmakers who have made something you know that that in in probably a different context may have may have um got a slightly wider viewing and release than it than it has done and also sort of relates to us getting sent requests to to watch things and do things and and the way that we we sort of go through that process because this is a a filmmaker Carl Hunter who who reached out to you after listening to the podcast is that right
0: yeah, that's right. Yeah, he sent me a message on Twitter saying that he'd listened to uh, a few episodes after Mark Jenkin had been tweeting uh, our praises. So thank you, Mark, for spreading the gospel. And uh, yeah, he he'd listened to your fantastic interview with Mark at Filmstock, and then a couple of others, and thought, "Oh, this seems like the sort of place that be a good place to talk about his film." And he just reached out to sort of make contact, and it was really nice to be. You know, it's always nice to be. Um, sort of approached by by filmmakers um, and we do get a lot of requests for for this kind of thing and it's it's tricky because you know we do want to have a diverse kind of representation of the types of films but there are so many factors that go into it in, in terms of timing what the program already looks like and whether we feel like we can bring anything to the conversation and also whether it's going to shine light on a film that that might not necessarily get the that kind of treatment anywhere else so there's a lot of that that goes into it and also you you kind of want to like the film and for it to be interesting to talk about in the first place I know that you sort of you know you sort of said before when we've had this you know like uh, you're trying to find the right kind of participant rather than someone who's just out for sort of 10 minutes of of a kind of promo
1: Yeah, I mean, we we do get that a little bit, don't we? Sort of, you can tell kind of random cut and paste PR emails saying, "Oh, do you want to talk about this film?" And you can always tell the difference between somebody who's sort of sat down and and knows who we are and has said, "You know, please consider this for your your podcast." And you expect that somebody would have had a listen to the uh, to the the place where they're trying to get on and talk about it. But I guess you know everybody who's making content, whatever type it is it's just trying to get the word out there half the time um and you know we aren't really interested in just sort of taking on whatever come comes up we do want we do tend to have a look don't we really at everything that comes in and say is this us is this us and i think also with this particular film it was nice that you you got a particular steer of the kind of film it is i mean we're always talking about the the fact that we like to go in fairly cold to films when we're watching them as a whole but it was interesting. This one had a particular kind of steer from the director, and that almost framed the way that we came to it. And it definitely, definitely influenced my reading of the film or my enjoyment of the film. Thinking, oh yeah, I can, I can see what's going on here in that frame of reference.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The, it, it is common and understandable for particularly, kind of, say, publicity emails to say, like this film or like this kind of filmmaker or in this kind of genre. But Carl explicitly said that. When watching Sometimes Always Never, which is the feature film that we're talking about today, that that uh, that came out recently, he said, uh, "Think uh, Aki Kurosaki," and that was really jarring because you know Kurosaki not a filmmaker that gets mentioned very much at all. You know, uh, Jim Jarmusch talks about him a lot, <laughs> yeah, but otherwise, it's it's a very strange signpost and and a very singular one. So it was it was one where. Like you say, normally I'm a bit reticent to to want to be guided towards a particular watching, but it was really interesting why why that name came up, and then when I watched it, I was like, ah, oh, I'm so I'm so glad he said that because you know it would have felt otherwise, like you know, kind of hit, trying to trying to deny the the fact that it's very very indebted to Karis Mackey, and not in a in a derivative way, but but it is very very inspired by Karis Mackey's work. Um, and it was just it was so refreshing, and some of the things that we talked about because we had a little conversation before I watched it were were kind of around what what Carl was trying to do, and I I was I was really curious to see how how you could make a British film that felt like Karis Mackie, knowing that you know Karis Mackie himself made a great film in Britain, um, "I hired a Contract Killer" with with Joe Strummer and uh, Jean-Pierre Lyot. and it was just a really yeah, refreshing uh, watch in that sense. And then when I, um, you know, sent, uh, sort of said to you about it, I said, "Oh, you know, think charismatic," because I think otherwise it could be quite, quite weird watching a film which feels so indebted, without having that kind of explicitly referenced up front, um, which I think is rare to actually kind of go in with that in mind.
1: Yeah, and also it's it's a strange one in that there's so few people in this world who would steer towards charismatic in the context of like picking any filmmaker in the kind of you know european art house sensibility i suppose it's kind of like even even within that context it's sort of left field um, and i think that it really sort of shows his interest in certain elements of representation particularly i think things like national identity and the way that the sort of iconographies of national identity feed into um, the way that, that some of the problematic elements that, that we feel about our relationship to our country or our region and how that that plays on things like memory in the past and the way that we see the world around us there's some really sort of interesting idiosyncratic kind of uh representations of of, of people and places i think that that are definitely trying to to sort of uh, i don't know satirizes the right word but play around with with those expectations of 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 what it means to live in a certain location and be a certain kind of person because of the place that you live.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And I think satirical, I think, is a is a good way of looking at it. Not necessarily like, yeah, laugh out loud or kind of very direct, but kind of subtle, yeah, playing around with this idea of what is Britishness. And I think one of the that there are so many other influences in the film. And since talking to Carl, I've gone on to write a chapter for a book that's coming out about about the film and, I've, and i focused on influence and the amount of kind of influence particularly non-british influences that are in the film and it feels like a comment on britishness in the sense of well britishness is not is not you know kind of parochial england uh without kind of any kind of wider context because the history of britain is one of influences coming in either by invasion or you know kind of uh, dominance or you know Britain being dominant elsewhere and bringing that stuff back, you know, and it's kind of, I think the film is is quite subtly kind of thoughtful about about that, which is why the the Kurosaki influence kind of makes sense because, like you say, it's kind of using other other kind of international flavors of, of of cinephilia and and photography and music to to kind of to make those points. So I think we'll talk a bit more about that afterwards. But but just to kind of to add to what you're saying there, I think what's what was great about it was when he said karismaki he knew that we would know what he meant and without being kind of too self-aggrandizing i don't think there's many podcasts that you could go to and say and that be a kind of known reference and obviously it's just you know we had done an, an episode on karismaki but but also i think it's he kind of knew that we would get it you know without being kind of too pompous but but i and i and i think it's he's such an acquired kind of fringe sort of cinephile favorite even now um that it's not going to be common a common reference to say to most places I think charismatic people think who who do you mean you know so i think he knew he was in, we were, he was in good hands um by asking us and sort of and uh, and sort of driving us in that way which was which was yeah which was true and then watching the film and really liking it was was kind of yeah um was a great feeling because you you there is still that worry that you'll watch something and not not kind of enjoy it but also not find anything of interest in it that, that you want to talk about and thank you on the podcast because i think we've chosen quite well we've never really been in that situation
1: absolutely so um yeah looking forward to it let's uh, let's listen to yourself talking to carl hunter about sometimes always never
0: whenever you make a decision whatever you choose there's another universe somewhere where you made the opposite choice i can't remember where you said to meet now
1: coast guard station is it near the sea
2: there are mysteries unsolved You'd like
0: this. It's like Scrabble, only with pig princesses. What's a pig princess? We'll have to make a night of it. No, we'll go on, we'll come back in the morning. It's already getting dark. I didn't bring a toothbrush. Which do you want? Cyberman or Dalek? His brother went missing and ever since then. It's
1: a prodigal son.
2: All he ever talked about was you.
1: I'm the one who didn't run away. I always say the only good thing about Jazz
2: is that it scores very highly on Scrabble. <laughs> You don't fancy making this
0: a bit more interesting, do you? A wager. What?
1: An indentured Russian peasant. I knew I'd heard it before. You hustled him.
0: Didn't the hustle him. I smashed him. Their son goes missing. They're going to look at the body. The one that might be our Michael. And you hustle him out of 200 quid. When you put it
2: like that. Obviously, you're welcome to stay. Grandad, that's my bed. Shh. shh. There's a girl who walks past two bus stops to be at the same bus stop as her, but he doesn't speak.
0: When this is done, the thing you have to remember about these buttons is sometimes, always, never. You looks Bruce.
2: Doesn't he look spruce?
0: Where have you seen those words before? In a game of Scrabble. Our Michael used to play them.
1: He's not coming back, you know.
2: What have I got to be scared of? The only thing I'm scared of is dying before I sort this out. He talked about going to meet some guy
0: off the internet. Is he mentally enfeebled?
2: I'm on was. other Have you had sex in my bed? Well, we weren't going to have sex in Jack's bed. I'm not Tarzan.
1: Why are you worried? He's a very experienced sailor, isn't he? Is he?
0: the podcast uh it's a real pleasure to talk to you i've spent the last few days sort of immersed in your your world thanks to the the materials that you sent me which was really yeah a real honor to kind of to see your process uh in terms of how you kind of put stuff together which has kind of led to quite a few of the questions um and also i watched a couple of the shorts that you included as well so day in the life and winter's tale which i think are really Tied in, particularly *Winter's Tale*, which I do want to sort of talk about the relationship between that short and and this film. Um, but they're all written with Frank Cottrell Boyce, and yeah. I just wondered if we could start with that uh, relationship, how it started, and you know how this kind of project came about.
2: Well, Frank and I go back a long, long way. Um, in fact, I met Frank through a friend of mine, uh, um, John Hodgkinson. There was no old dear friend, and for, uh, John used to work at the Plaza, uh, the uh, Crosby Community Cinema. Uh, he was the Art House programmer at the Plaza Cinema, of which Frank was a patron. Um, he still is, um, and that's where he, that's where I met Frank, which was a long time ago. Um, and then I've been making documentaries for television, um, so I had quite a few documentaries under my belt. and I knew Frank was a you know, very talented and brilliant screenwriter. And I could talk to him about film all day. Um, and then one day he, he said to me, you know, why don't we try and make something together? You, you're a director. I'm a writer. Um, we live, we're neighbours. Um, in fact, I must tell you a neighbourly story in a moment. But um, but anyway, so he said, why don't we, why don't we do something? Um, and the first thing we did do was I'd been working for Channel 4, I made a a series for Channel 4 about migrants, about asylum seekers who'd been given allotments in Liverpool. Um, And that came on the back of me and my partner had been approached by a psychoanalyst who was involved in working with victims of trauma. And her project in Liverpool was to give asylum seekers and refugees allotments because there's a a long history of kind of the importance of kind of gardening as therapy, um, which works really well. And, you know, there's a lot of of things written about it, a lot of studies about it. Plus also, you must have family and friends who you know, once they've gardened, feel better. Um, People plant things, they look after them, they watch them grow, they feel better. So there is a lot of kind of um, a long history of kind of, Garden and therapy being very, very connected, um, and I was just fascinated by the whole process. Um, and, and initially, my partner and I had made a fundraising film for the Family Refugee Support Project, um, with a view to saving it because we'd ran out of money. Um, anyway, the project was successful, the film was successful, but then the fund and film became a kind of pilot for a Channel Four series. Um, And I was down to Stuart Cosgrove with Channel 4. Stuart saw the pilot. I had a meet with Stuart one afternoon, and I showed him the pilot, which he loved. Um, And as as the pilot finished, Stuart said, do you want a series? And I said, Oh, I meant to pitch something? And he went, no, I know exactly what you're doing. I know where you're coming from. I know what you make. Let's just do a series. So I made a series with Channel 4 called uh, Putting Down Roots which was a series of um, <laughs> short documentaries about the lives of particular refugees and asylum seekers on those allotments. Um, and they were very successful. You know, um, uh, program of the day in The Guardian, um, or pick of the day in The Guardian. So you know, it was um, you know, well-received. But Frank spotted something really interesting. Frank said to me, why don't you think about turning those... Documentaries into a feature film. He said, because one is it's very topical, it. and also it's an international story which is on your doorstep. So then we started this BBC Films development um, path, and eventually BBC Films commissioned the film. and We made a film called uh, um, Grow Your Own, which starred Olivia Coleman, Phil um, Jackson, and Eddie Marzan. Um, lots of great actors. Um, So we made this film for BBC Films. And that was the first thing we made together, really, was was a feature film, bizarrely, (laughs) uh, for BBC Films. And then when the feature film uh, was released, and shortly after that, we started to work on a film called Triple Word Score, which became Sometimes Always Never. And the film was always about to get made. And every time it was about to get made, it fell at the last hurdle um, for whatever reason. The main reason being, it was mainly me, um, because, and I'm sure you're very aware of this, is first-time directors are like an anathema to people who film films, um, which is crazy. Yeah. But I can't change that. Um, But that's... It exists, and there's no point in pretending it doesn't exist because it does. And so, the reason the film never got off the ground in the early stages was every time it was close to being funded, someone would say the bond won't secure funding for Carl as a first time director. Ironically, I would made Grow Your Own, which I co wrote with Frank and I produced, um, and it was directed by Richard Laxton. Um, and the BBC even offered me a training. Kind of scheme, if you like, that if I went on set every day, which I did, I went to every every, I went to every single meeting, pre-production, production, I was on there every day the shoes, I was at the edits, I was at post-production, so i kind of gone through the whole journey of making a film. So despite all that, you know, a first-time director, it's still, as I say, an anathema. Um, so the film was always going to get made, it's triple-word score, and then it always failed. And then, um, my old band, The Farm, our drummer, Roy Boltec, is a very successful screenwriter for television and also a very successful producer. And his company, Hurricane Films, um, is very successful. They did the Ken Davis films. They've just done um, The Last Bus uh, Timothy Spall. But one day I was in a van uh, going to a, a festival. Or a bus, rather, going to a festival with Roy to play a gig. And... Um, and then Roy just said, "Why don't you let us make the film? We make movies. I've been in a band for the best part of 25 years. We're very old friends. Why don't you let us try and get the film made?" And now it's something you think, "Oh yeah, this is a man I spent 25 years with. Playing, you know, he was playing drums in a band. I played bass. We are, we are the engine room of a pop band. You know." Um, we are the engine room of a pop band. What's a water film? You know, uh, what's the producer and the director? So anyway, so so, Roy said, let me have a go. And I'll see if I can get it made. And bless him and his uh, partner, Saul, Saul Papadopoulos, um, by hook or by crook, they got it made, yeah. which was an enormous achievement. But they did get it made.
0: Mm, amazing. Um, and so when, when are you making... Uh... A Day in the Life and Winter's Tale. Is that pre this shoot?
2: Yeah, both those short films, A Day in the Life and A Winter's Tale, made, uh, yeah, pre, sometimes, always, never. Um, I've made a few other things with Frank, uh, short films, kind of art projects, photographic projects. Um, I worked on a book with him, which won um, won the biggest book prize in Europe, biggest children's book prize in Europe, called The Unforgotten Coast. Um, which maybe we'll chat about a little bit later. Um, so I've done do a lot of things in a multimedia way. Yeah. I've been a photographic illustrator for a book. I've been a, an illustrator for a web scene he did, which was great fun. did all the illustrations for that. Um, I wrote a soundtrack and songs for a Radio 4 play he did. So I've been a composer. Yeah. So I've worked with as a director, an illustrator, photographer. The composer, um, and day before yesterday, I was the milkman. Um, <laughs> he lives nearby, and a friend of mine gave me a crate of ale. Um, my friend owns a micro brewery, and he brews this beautiful ale called the uh, Formy Blonde, which is a very pale, light ale. It's very nice. And uh, he dropped me, uh, I bumped into him, he gave me a crate of ale. So I popped down to Frank's and left two bottles on his doorstep. And the next morning on Twitter, he posted, um, uh, "My neighbour's the best milkman you could have." So I've even been his milkman. Uh, So I work with Frank in a multimedia way, which I'm very fond of because I love multimedia. Yeah. Um, So a day in life and um, a winter's tale. Winter's tale came about because the um, the British Council were looking for directors to reimagine Shakespeare to kind of. Um, 400 years after his death they wanted to kind of look at how would you reimagine kind of classic Shakespearean text so they asked Hurricane Films to recommend someone Mm. and Hurricane said well we work with Frank and Carl so why don't we ask them so then we, Frank and I then went on this journey of doing this micro Shakespearean tale
0: Visually it looks very very connected to uh uh, sometimes, always, never. You know, there's the, a lot of very similar locations, similar compositions, a very kind of charismatic approach. Was it? Was that always the intention? And and then, when the feature came about, were you still in that kind of space of those photographers, those filmmakers as kind of influences for you? Yeah,
2: I think my head's always been in the space of a very particular group of artists, be them photographers, graphic designers, painters, um, or filmmakers. Um I, I am stuck, I'm not stuck in a rut but I am stuck in a world which fascinates me. I mean I'm very open minded as well. I mean, you know, show me something new, I'll probably love that as well. But there's a certain thing I like, and as I get older, I'm liking that thing even more as well. um, and photography is really important to me. I'm a huge fan of photography. And photography really shaped my life because as a young young boy. Uh, growing up in North Liverpool. um, I lived, uh, where I lived was a a community arts project called Art in Action, which was a fantastic arts project. Um, Quite maverick when I look back, although it didn't see it at the time. But basically it was a group of anarchists and and socialists and communists who kind of ran this community arts project. Um, Anarchists and communists in the same room At the same time, now there's an education (laughs) when you're 14. (laughs) Well, what the community arts project did was it kind of, people like me would stumble on it and they would teach you to use the 35mm camera. So by the age of 14, I could load a Pentax K1000 with a roll of 35mm film, Um, run off a roll. I could process it by hand, I could print it by hand. Um, So I began to understand lenses very early on. I understood chemistry understood how films processed and so the kind of the chemicals and chemistry involved in filming and taking photos. More importantly, what it did lay, which I never understood at the time, was the idea of the arts project I was involved in was it was about you going out and documenting where you live. So in fact, at the age of fourteen, I was a documentary maker. Mm. But I didn't know that. I just thought it was a fourteen year old kid with an obsession with the jam and the clash, who had fun with the camera. That's what I thought. Yeah. Well, actually, there was a seed planted there, um, which was, I then realised I've got a great interest in how an image tells a story. Now, I know that now, but at 14, I couldn't have even begun to realise that was the journey I was starting on. Yeah. But that's what I began to realise, was the power of images.
0: And what, what does working with, you know, for watching those films over the last couple of days, it feels like you have a great freedom in terms of being a, a very visually led director. Um, and I wonder if that is, you feel kind of, oh, it's hard to sort of say, but you you feel like you can just go off and really, really kind of focus on the visuals because Frank's words are so trustworthy. You know, you know what the words are going to do and you can feel them and then you can just build this kind of visual world on top of those. Is that, is that a fair kind of assessment of how you feel in terms of that collaboration?
2: Yeah, working with Frank and with game as well, um, there's an awful lot of freedom. Um, yeah, there's an awful lot of visual freedom. Um, Frank trusts me, um, which is great. And Roy and Sol are Hullochain. They do trust me, although I've seen them put their head in their hands a few times and, and cry. Uh, when I suggest the things, but they, in general, they do trust me. Um, sometimes I get it right, and sometimes I get it horribly wrong. But the thing is, I think you need to operate in a space where where there is trust and there is room for for experimentation. Um, it's like um, I'm sure you maybe later on you want to get onto it, but in terms of style, is I do have a very kind of strong visual style. But well, that comes out of again being a 14 year old kid and yeah. um, looking through a lens. But that kind of experience got me into an art college. So, my degree my MA, um, my, my BA is in graphic design, um, and my MA is in multimedia design and production, which I think is actually called interactive art, or well, maybe called that then, or it was a long time ago. Um, So I come from a kind of strong visual kind of culture. But that young lad with a camera, that journey I went on, um, it was like Narnia, really. Kind of opened the doors to a different world. And that's what I loved about art school, was all of a sudden there were people doing things I wasn't aware of, people telling me things I wasn't aware of, people showing me stuff I wasn't aware of. And then also as well, people connecting and joining up dots, which... That in itself is a re- revelation. Um, as a young lad, I was obsessed with music. Um, I was very, very obsessed with record sleeves. If I could end a record sleeve designer, um, and through that obsession, I ended up you know, designing record sleeves. Um, so, But as a young lad, I'd spend days, of the weekends anyway, in Liverpool. And my two uh, places I'd always visit would be the Walker Art Gallery in Liverpool, which is stunning. Absolutely beautiful place, and to be all these like, beautiful paintings that I don't know the history of at the time, I didn't know, but I'd stand there in awe of these amazing images, and then imagine who painted it, why they painted it, what was going on, why would you, why would you paint that? What's, what's it about? Um, and then I'd pop into Virgin Records or Probe um, or Backtracks. Or um, Penny Lane records in Liverpool. And then I would thought through the vinyl. So I'd be picking up a record sleeve by saying, um, God Save the Queen, by Sex Pistols. Although, in all fairness, that would have been a few years after it was released, not, not at the time. I don't even know. <laughs> um, um, so I'd pick up record sleeves. I'd, I'd, be, a, I'd be in awe of them. And I'd always read the back of them, who designed them. Um, I became a bit of a train spotter. Oh, things like God Save the Queen, for instance, which I think is arguably the greatest record sleeve ever. Um, but what I didn't know was actually that record sleeve, which was designed by Jamie Reid, comes out of a long history. The history starts actually with Dadaism. Now, I'd never heard of Dadaism until I went to do a degree mm. in graphic design. Um, and then Dadaism... And Jamie Reed took me around the world of situationism, which I was unaware of. And once I discovered that, then all of a sudden things made more sense. The clash made more sense. Um, and then collage made more sense. I always assumed collage was something I did as a young lad at school in the art room because it was fun.
0: Yeah,
2: and it is fun. What I didn't know till later on was actually a collage can be a, a deeply Radical thing to do, um, and then that took me into the world of people like uh, John Harfield, the uh, photo montage artist. He was, I think, was the fifth most wanted man by the Gestapo during the Second World War. Um,
1: and John Harfield
2: was a huge inspiration to me. And in fact, yesterday or day before, Frank did an article for Radio 4 about Jan uh, about Tove uh, Johansson. I hope name right. Was the creator of the movement, yeah? Tove Janssen, um,
0: isn't it? Yeah, Tove Janssen, yeah.
2: yeah. Now, I who doesn't love the movement? But I don't know anything about it, but the fact that I love the movement, I don't know if you know this, but Tove was an incredibly brilliant illustrator. And during the Second World War, she was the political cartoonist for a magazine called a uh, uh, Jarm J A R M, and she used to do these satirical do- uh, drawings and cartoons of Hitler. It's Amazing. like movement, Hitler. How does that happen? <laughs> um, so, so that kind of art school journey kind of taught me an awful lot about, actually, I'm not the only person to ever think of this. Lots of people think of it, but now I know why they think of it. And that joining of dots in itself, I think has been my, it's the greatest school of education I've ever had in my yeah. life. Amazing. Um, so important, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um... Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to come back to the kind of the education thing towards the end. But you you sort of, when we spoke before, before I watched the films, you sort of mentioned Gregory Crudson as a photographer who's, you know, who was very kind of important. And then in the material that you shared, you you know, there's there's a lot of references to his his work. And there are sort of moments in the film where you really feel like you're in the Crudson world. But also there was photographers like William Eggleston and Martin Parr, and I just wondered, you know, like, it, is, is, are you kind of conscious of those as you're kind of making the film? And w- one of the questions I want to come to later is about what is a British film? And what was really interesting about Sometimes Always Never was how many non British styles and forms were kind of presented almost as, you know, as an homage and a tribute, but the fact that they were in this kind of very, very specific British context kind of meant that it didn't feel cheap. It didn't feel like you were just kind of stealing, but more that you were kind of trying to trying to expand almost what a visual, a British film could look like in terms of its aesthetic influences.
2: Yeah, I am conscious all the time, by the way. Of that. Um, and I, I've sent over some kind of photographs from the scrap that I've been carried around the set. Um, in fact, I carry it every day. I've shooting and in pre-production. Um, and that was kind of a visual Bible for me. And I found it incredibly useful when I was communicating with either the production designer, Tim, or the DOP, um, Richard, um, with whom I had a great relationship. Um, so I would often just show them a photograph and say, this is how I feel. This is what the scene should feel like. Um, this is the mood of the scene, I think. Um, that's what I'm going for. And then Richard, which uh, is started the thing, and he'd just go, uh, got it. I know exactly what you mean. And Tim, the production designer, again, I'd show him photographs and say, that's kind of how I feel this room should look. But I'm not trying to design the room. That's not my job.
0: Yeah.
2: That's the feel. And he'd go, OK, I know where to take this now. So I found carrying a scrapbook um, really, really, really useful. And uh, that thing about kind of in films where... Um, I mean, we will talk more about Britishness in a minute, because I'm really interested in that. Um, but this idea that kind of, in academia, um subject we're both entrenched in, um, but in academia, when you write a paper or a journal, you, you're eternally, you're always referencing other people, aren't you? So kind of weirdly, in academia, if you write a piece about... Um, Aki Karazmaki I like can say um, the only way you'll get it in a journal is you have to reference other people's opinions on Aki Kausimaki. um but if you do it in a film sometimes it seems a negative thing so I think it's the same thing yeah. it's like all that really is, um, one is i wearing the heart on my sleeve um, but also what I'm actually doing all the time is I'm reference and saying, kind of, and I know history.
0: Yeah.
2: I'm not best at it. In fact, I'm not even that good at it, really. But the point is, it's important for me to say.
0: Yeah.
2: I am engaging with history.
0: Well, that's the it's thing, like, isn't it? Yeah, there's a difference between repurposing stuff and kind of being in dialogue with it and being in conversation with it and building on it and how you yeah. put together all of those different influences and different flavours and then bring your own ideas and your own kind of ethos to it and I think that that's sometimes a, a fine line but what's felt in your film is very much that you are engaged in a dialogue with that stuff rather than just saying look at this cool image or look at this cool image
2: Yeah well I'm glad you said that thanks for that um, yeah, because my, my intention is to, to use a certain style of photography um, or design or kind of visual um it. that's that what i'm actually saying is i'm not using this because i can't think of anything else and it's a it's a quick way of getting around the problem it's it's kind of it is me saying i am engaging with kind of um film history um and i am i am not going to people i admire uh without a doubt i mean there's definite nods to Bill forsyth definitely Not so Wes Anderson. So, but it's about talking about kind of. I am thinking of film history all the time, you
0: know, because I'm very interested in film history. Yeah, one of the films that struck me the most, which you haven't mentioned, um, and you didn't mention it before we spoke, was Hal Ashby's Being There, and particularly in Bill Nighy's performance, you know, which feels like it's in a kind of liminal space, almost like a ghostly presence. You know, um, in terms of not necessarily like what he's doing, but, but um or what the the characters doing, but the, his performance feels like he's outside of everything else that's going on, but connected to it on this kind of higher plane, and that's to do with plot, but but very much to do with you know. So was that is that a film that you're aware of, or um, is that a kind of unconscious thing that's coming?
2: No, being there is a film I was very very aware of. In fact, if you look at the poster. Yeah, um, yeah,
0: very similar. Film. Yeah,
2: um, you know, you can see again as a kind of, as a kind of nod there as well. Um, no, I was very conscious of that film. The, um, the link or the reference to that film would have been much much more significant because in the original uh, draft of the film or the early drafts, there was much more of a ghost story running through the film, um, because Sam Riley used to spot his brother Michael. Uh, throughout the film, uh, just be like a, a figure that would appear, mm. and then when he look again, the figure would be gone. So, actually, in the original early drafts of the film, there was much, much more of a ghost story mm. through um, it. And the being there, reference or nod, would have been much more obvious, mm. actually, hadn't we shot the original kind of early versions mm. of the film. But we moved away from the ghost story in the end a little more.
0: I think it's very powerful in terms of the absence of Michael, you know, it's felt really much. Um, And I I did want to talk about Nye's performance because I think one of the things that's hinted at in a lot of his performances but never really explored is what a great physical actor he is. But he's got a very subtle physicality. But you, you very rarely see it explored or exploited to its full. But you really do that. You really lean on how he moves and how he stands and how he is in a frame, you know. Um, is that part of his acting that you kind of really wanted to pull out or was that something that came out of the process of working with him sort of one-to-one?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, I did want to pull out with him an awful lot, that kind of sense of, um, let's try something slightly different. Um, but the great thing about Bill is, um, he's an absolute choice to work with um, I can't sing his praises enough he's, he's a huge and talented man but his generosity is just unbelievable um, go back to that thing about being a first time director you know, doing a debut feature film everybody has a hang up about it financiers panic about it everyone panics but not Bill it doesn't register with bill at all it if he buys into what you're into which he did very quickly Once he realised that I was going to make a very particular type of film, I had him 100%, and he never left my side, Mm. emotionally, mentally, morally, physically, actually, (laughs) to the same extent. But um, but now he was um, incredibly easy to work with, I have to say. But Bill, Bill loves being directed, absolutely loves it, and he wanted that, he wanted me to kind of push and take the film somewhere. And his performances to a place where maybe other people might have pushed him in that yeah. direction. So, no, it was, it was a joy. It was everything um, about it. He was happy to try things. Um, he had ideas himself, yeah. which were always. But, no, it was kind of, I mean, he was such an open minded man to work with. You know, no matter what I said, he'd go, great, let's try it.
0: And you, you on one of your lovely Polaroids, in terms of the process you sort of say that when you showed him a, a particular one he was like this is the film I want to be in um yeah. which kind of says a lot in terms of your process so you know did you take him the book and or uh, as it was then or was it just a series of photos and what i loved about that which is kind of not really connected is how the polaroids are planning and a reference but they're also a record you know in terms of the 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 milestones of making the film so that that kind of polaroid becomes both A reference point for the actor, but also a record for you of that moment when Bill Nye said, "I'm in." You know.
2: Well, the same. I think one of the photographs I sent you on the Polaroids. I may have written on one of them. This was the photograph that Bill said the reason why he'd be in the films. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I'm not sure. If I haven't seen that, I will do. Yeah,
0: no, that's Um, the one I'm talking about. Yeah, it's such a lovely moment of knowing that that's played such an integral part in what's followed and that you're well, reflecting
2: on I mean, it's a true story. But If you, um, if you kind of Google Bill doing interviews um, about the film, um, he often brings it up in conversation. But we had... Um, um, the lads from Watergate, William Salt, and Frank and I, um, went to meet Bill for the first time, which has been nerve-wracking really because I'm a first-time director. i meet meeting Bill Knight, it was Bill. It's like, oh dear, what, you know, what do you say, what do you do, you know, kind of, really like me? All those things kind of, you know, understandably, yeah. you
1: know,
2: you're you know, away in your mind. Um, actually, it was, I had no reasons to be nervous in the end. Um, uh, Bill was charming, as he always is, and he said, um, he said, I love the script. Um, I really, really love the script. Um, And he said, I'm not bothered about Carl being a first-time director. That doesn't, I'm not, anyway, I have no concerns whatsoever. All I need to work out is kind of, are we on the same page? Effectively. So he said, the only thing I've got, it's a little budget film. The budget was two and a half million. So you know, which in terms of British indie films, that's one small, but two and a half million pound film. And Bill said, my only concern is that often there's a sense of indie filmmaking, which is based in what we can kind of masquerade as truth. Um, And he said, that's my own concern, really. And um, and I said, well, can I say something here? Because can I show you something? And in my inside pocket, I had a collection of polaroids that I'd taken on one of the many walks I did and do regularly. And I said to Bill, can I show you a collection of polaroids I take the journeys I go on at the time of the war and so like a pack of cards Bill went through them and he said hey these are beautiful he said "Do you take them I said yes he said these are beautiful and he stopped at one of them and he went he held it up he said um I'd like to be in that film and I said that's the film I'm going to make and Bill went okay let's do it pretty much that's almost way way what happened
0: yeah amazing
2: I was so shocked when he said, okay, well, well, let's just do it. And I, I don't know what it was, but I didn't have a comeback. I didn't expect to be sat in a hotel, with Bill and I going, I'll be in your film. Mm. I was like, what? Like, how does that happen? So, uh, so I didn't really i come back at first. Um, so we did the other thing we always do, me and Bill, is, uh, talk about clothes. So we uh, commented each other on our clothes um, I had a vintage Fred Perry on which he spotted straight away um, including here uh, so I commented on his coat and his jacket um, and then that's where the journey started so then I was in touch with Bill all the time then and then the road to the film uh, we discussed the film an awful lot and he just loved you know I'd say I'd go out to, to I'd go meet him and so I got an idea for this scene um, I'm going to take all the noise out of it. There's going to be no dialogue in it. There's going to be no sound in it. There's going to be nothing in it. Um, and I'd be a bit nervous thinking, would he, you know, would he go for that? Would he be happy? Is he uncomfortable? And Bill would just go, "That sounds great to me. Let's just do it." Yeah. So it was, it was easy, really. In some respects, it was easy, but. It was good working with Bill because of that thing. Of, um, I mean, he did say, "I love to be directed," and because I knew that, I had no there's no barriers. There was no sense of nervousness. I could talk to him about anything, however daft it might seem, however odd. Mm. Uh, but also as well, because he knew that my kind of kind of film sensibilities were coming from a different place. It was just. It just embraced what I was doing. Yeah. Honestly,
0: you made, you made my life in isn't Yeah. And I think it's amazing that, you know, you sort of say this, that's the film I'm going to make from the Polaroids. And then when you sort of see the Polaroids and you see the film, it they are, it's the, you know, it's, you you have a very, very uh, distinct visual style, which is very clear from the, the Polaroid material and then very evident in the film. Um, so I wonder if we could kind of talk about, about that, because one of the things you said before is like, what is a British film? So that's one of the questions that was kind of had in my head when I was watching it. And it doesn't it doesn't look like it doesn't look like many British films, um, but it is kind of quintessentially British in in its feel, you know, and I want and I was thinking about that. and I wondered if what makes it so is that is the kind of the shifts between the tones, you know, it's very funny um Bill's very funny um his turn of phrase is is, you know is is very very quick very very sharp but it's also very very moving and it kind of glides between those two planes effortlessly but it's it's not like it's one thing then another it's both things at once and I wonder if that's something which is in a lot of the best British films is being able to to have those kind of two layers you know Mike Lee's work which is which was a kind of, I was thinking particularly of something like, um, uh, uh, oh, what was I thinking of? Um, it's completely gone out of my head now. Um, the one where Timothy Spall is a chef. Is it High Hopes? No, maybe not High Hopes. Um, completely gone out of my head. But but that kind of, its a, there's a stylizedness to it, which allows you to kind of shift between pathos and comedy. Yeah. You know, at, at the drop of a hat, but not, not to kind of pull the rug out from under the audience, but to to hold those both both those things, which your film does really really well.
2: Well, I think for, I suppose from a directing point of view, in terms of performance, is um, I did speak at length to um, uh, to the cast about how I was going to direct, and, you know, what I was going to do, and how I was going to do it. Um, that was all fine, but what I was what I did say was the script is quite funny, but I'm not making a comedy. Um so none of the lines are meant to be played for a laugh. Um so kind of I remember reading something about uh um, a while ago. and um, kind of way but someone said of him that his films are um kind of they're a dry comedy with they're they're a dry comedy and they're warm-hearted. Mm. That's what he does, dry comedy and warm-hearted. Um and I suppose that's what. If there was a kind of um, a bar for it was that? Uh, it's a bit Bill Yeah, Bill sight dry
1: exactly.
2: yeah. comedy, but warm-hearted. Um, and also the other thing I said to the um, to the actors was that this film is optimistic, and it's not pessimistic. This is not a pessimistic film at all. Um, in the same way, I suppose. No for Scythe. He doesn't really make pessimistic films, does he? His film's are nearly always. Well, all of them I suppose. They're all ultimately optimistic. Um, and that was the other thing I said to the, to the actors was this film is optimistic. Without any doubt that's what it is, but always bear that in mind. Um and try comedy is something I'm a big fan of, because there's some really funny lines in it. Some very, very good mm. comedic lines.
0: Yeah, I'd say the only Bill for Scythe film that probably isn't is housekeeping. Um but again there's some really funny moments in it as well. Um but yeah I think I think you're right. And I think it's 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 quite rare. It's rare in British cinema, I think. To Yeah,
2: it is rare, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. There's always much
0: more of a cutting sharper edge, you know, which is not to say that there's not a politics in the film, but that it's Mm -hmm. it's not as sharp, I guess. Um yeah the caris mackie thing i think is 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 fascinating because what i love about his cinema is the way it's it creates a world for characters who are assumed in the real world but rarely seen they're certainly not seen on screen and rather than putting them in quote unquote realistic places and spaces it creates a kind of heightened space uh, giving them a almost a kind of otherworldliness and acknowledging at the same time the politics of the fact that these are characters who we don't really know what their world looks like because it's only ever conveyed in certain terms and that was really really wonderful about your film was the, the sense of these are characters we just don't see in terms of their interior life and what we sense about them in terms of their background and the things that have happened to them and things like that which is not just the the main family but then also the the other family that kind of is is also part of the film with their own ghosts and their own tragedy
2: well the idea of kind of um, uh, i mean the only films i want to make are optimistic films um, I, I don't want to ever make a pessimistic film um, at all um, I only want to make optimistic films but also i think uh, in terms of um like i don't want to make gritty reality films Hear that? I've got no interest in them, but I do like heightened reality. I love the, the sense of like any kind of heightened reality. And the thing about cinema, anyway, is kind of um, you know, kind of uh, early projectors were called ghost lanterns, that's what they were referred to as. And I suppose with sometimes always never, you've kind of got kind of it is a ghost lantern, isn't it? Um.
0: Well, there's a sense that there's a sense that all those characters are well, the the main character, Sam Riley's character, Bill Nye's character, they're kind of live. They're living in the past in in yeah. an emotional sense because they're they've they a moment in time has been ripped from from their life. You know when you know Sam's brother and Bill's son disappears and you know it almost kind of creates this sense of them not being able to to move on into the present you know they're kind of they are stuck in the past and and kind of conjuring the ghost of michael not necessarily physically but certainly in terms of psychologically he's very much a presence in their life isn't he so yeah well the the look of
2: the film is one is one very is, is a 92 minute visual metaphor anyway i suppose because the film although it's contemporary, it looks like it's set in the past. Mm. Uh, But it isn't. It's it's set now, it's it's Mm. a contemporary film. Um, And the reason for that is what I was trying to convey was how this family are trapped in the past through grief. So what you're saying is right, is kind of, they are trapped in a a different place, a place from probably 10 years ago, 12 years ago, which they've been able to leave through grief. And the only way that'll ever change is when you deal with grief And with the best will in the world, they're never going to find Michael. That's not going to happen. So what you have to do is if you're going to make something good, instead of looking for the the sun that's gone missing, look for the sun that has also gone missing, but lives pretty much next door. So instead of looking, you know, into infinity, into space, hoping you'll find someone, why don't you find the person that's lost is actually next door to you more or less. Yeah. So it kind of deals with that as well. So the look of the film does have a of, I say a look in the past, but that's to do with
0: you know past his grief. Yeah, yeah. And and then the final the final scene of the film is, is very much not it's contemporary, you know, it's very much the now of the of that, that family's kind of life. Um one yeah. of the one of the one of the locations that's come up in the um in all three of the films that i've watched uh, this one and then the the two shorts is is crosby beach and gormley's another place um yeah. so you do seem very drawn to that what does that mean to you as a as a as a piece of work uh and and particularly what it says about where it is because it feels very much that you are connecting to it through understanding the place where it is as much as the artwork itself
2: well I mean, there's, there's a few kind of reasons for kind of Crosby Beach and, and films, for me anyway, is once it's um, it's a 15-minute walk from my door. Nice. So it's near. Um, that's not the reason. Um, but I'm kind of... I, I've stayed in Liverpool all my life. Because um, I like Liverpool. and um, I like Merseyside. Um, and I know for kind of for some people, you know, in you know, kind of, it's not in London, it doesn't exist, um, which I've got to be. I'm two hours on the train from London. I get to London quicker than some of my friends you who know, live you know, four miles across London and five miles from <laughs> um, London. It can in some cases. So, um, uh, but I, am I like Merseyside, and I'm quite interested in kind of Liverpool as a place as well, um, kind of historically, because it's a port. And um, and the thing about port is, Port will always have had information coming in, and information going out. Um, in fact, it just reminded me of a story I interviewed. Um, you know, Vivat with, Al, with Yeah, yeah. Um, she was in the slits, and now she's a you know, brilliant filmmaker and great solo uh, artist as well. Um, I think she's a genius. There, but I interviewed her a few years ago, and. And she was talking about Liverpool. She used to come here a lot to play a, a nightclub called Eric's, which was the kind of famous, punk club in Liverpool. Um, and she said something which blew my mind. She said she loves Liverpool. And the reason she does is partly connected to the post. And she said, when you think about it, um, what, it what, what was Liverpool going back hundreds of years? And it was like one of the dominant ports? She said, it was the internet. It was a portal. You had information coming in and you had information going out. She said Liverpool was Google. <laughs> and I, I kind of, that's always kind of really, really stuck with me. Yeah. Because she's right. Because when you think about it, in the days before, when, when communication, was any distance anyway, it was incredibly difficult to do. You know, Liverpool, I know the ports as well, but Liverpool, in particular, was Liverpool was receiving. Food, dress, music, politics, um, design, all those things were coming in. And then a generation would go by, and that generation would be influenced something some point by one of those things. But then they would leave from to Australia or come to America or, or whatever, yeah. Ireland or whatever, um, or anywhere else in the world. And they'd be taking that with them. So I've and that's made me more interested in Liverpool a place now, thinking, well, historically, it was like Google. It was, Liverpool was a search engine. and <laughs> <laughs> I just, just can't get that. I mean, that's by the way, that's Viv uh, understanding of it. I've nicked it from it. So just to give her credit to ensure you know, um, she doesn't come hunting me down to stealing her thoughts. <laughs> but those thoughts are important. And so when you've got that kind of coastal thing, those coastal images in the short films and sometimes always never is there is this sense that you know we as people and the statues go this way they're looking out but they're not looking out to avoid it. they're looking out into the past yeah. and also potentially the future who knows what's going to come in when you used to come through that port yeah. through that coastline um, and who knows what we will explore. Yeah. so it's kind of to me it's a kind of it is a portal mm. so the coast for me is very important one is i love the coast i'm a big fan of the sea um big fan of beaches big fan of nature and um, big fan of walking so kind of mentally and aesthetically it's important to me. yeah but i do think it is a place where people have arrived and people have gone thoughts have arrived and thoughts have left yeah so the coast for me is quite it's quite important i think
0: philosophically and metaphorically yeah and just to kind of to build on that you know in in winter's tale there's a very literal you know kind of connection with the gormley statues but 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 more than that it feels like you know you're looking at the kind of the past of masculinity and fatherhood and then in sometimes always never as well it's like what is what is a dad (laughs) what is a man and we you know that that feels very much kind of uh something that you're interested in is like what you know bill nye's character sartorily and kind of music is very much from a particular era that's that's gone but is constantly recycled and sam riley's character is has some of that in terms of design and you know his interest in stuff but but also he's not and then there's the son who's also the grandson and it feels like and, and then just sort of seeing it with a winter's Tale*. this you know what What is a dad you know it very they feel very much about you know those characters thinking very explicitly about what the role of the son is and what the role of the father is it's kind of is that Is that something that you are aware of and were drawn to in the script, or something that's a bit more unconscious
2: no, no it's something I'm, I'm quite drawn from the script is um because I think um we have kind of very strong about family but, um which i think and I always have thought is that is um, what a child needs is is a good carer. Now, whether that carer is a, you know, a, a gay uh, your grandparents, father, a mother, just a father, just a mother, um, foster parents or whatever. And my view is that what a child needs is a good carer. And whatever flavour that carer comes in is irrelevant, I think. Because as long as that carer has the ability uh, to guide and bring the child up in safety um, that to me is the important thing. So the idea that you actually need this kind of nuclear family um, there's a lot of dysfunctional people in nuclear families um, there's a lot of very functional people in single parent families. I'm out from a single parent family um, so, so, I have kind of, yeah, I do have very strong views on that. Yeah. But, yeah, I think it's, it um, kind of it does look at like kind of, yeah, the role of, of the parents, in this case, father. But, um, but he is not on his own. Mm. And he is bringing up a child. Um, and has both the child, well, um, he has brought of a child, or two initially. And he's brought up child on his own.
0: Yeah.
2: One of them's got missing. I mean, that's an awful, that's a big, big problem and weight to carry through your life. So, and in fact, he hasn't done a bad job bringing you know, Sam up in the film. No. Um, you know, Sam's, you know, poor old Sam has his own kind of issues in terms of, he doesn't understand what happened to his brother. Was it his fault? Was it his dad's fault? Was it someone else's fault? Will you ever see him again? Yeah. I mean, they're all things that kind of, like a, like a dense fog, hang around him all day. And that can't be pleasant. And, um But I think what we were trying to do is, with the film, was was just grapple with the idea that you're not going to find Michael. Find Sam instead.
0: Yeah.
2: Find Sam, some of the pain will go. Mm. It's not that by finding Sam, the resolution is, well, you don't need to find Michael. You forget about it. That's not the resolution. The resolution is, find Sam, find him. And you're part of the way.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's
2: a kind of recovery.
0: Yeah, it's not at the expense of it, it's just that's that's what needs mm-hmm. to be done. Yeah.
1: It's
2: really... Yeah, yeah. yeah. As far as well, um kind of some um Martin who's who's kinda of helped me write this academic book about the film, he said something really interesting. He said the film, in a way, um what did you describe as um he's not scrabble. Um, he said the film is like a game of Scrabble, in that you know Scrabble is finite because um, you run out of lessons. Yeah. But so is life. You know, life we run out of days at yeah. some point. He said so weirdly. The film and life, Scrabble and life, are kind of similar things yeah. in a way. I, I just, which I thought was a brilliant kind of. Uh, I've nicked his. His line there, nice.
0: well yeah and like and, and part of it is where is where uh, the dad says play the play the man not the board but he's playing yeah. the board and you know throughout the film he's not playing the man he's playing the board isn't he and then it's about playing the man and he realizes that yeah we don't give it away um yeah interesting love that um so yeah just to kind of end really we sort of um we're both in kind of academia you've talked there a lot about kind of your education and how important it was to you in terms of yeah kind of giving you a sense of identity and understanding your 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 kind of position in a lineage of of art Um, and I just wondered how how your filmmaking and your teaching are connected you know do you see them as overlapping in any in any areas and if so how and where because I'm interested in as someone who also makes films and and teaches you know that relationship and and where where you feel there's a connection?
2: Well, I think I think the, well, the first thing is is uh, the word education. Um, education to me is is very important. Um, and by education, I don't mean you have to go to university. Um, to learn is a great thing. Uh, and I think to have someone with you who can take you on a journey of education um, and do it kind of successfully and with kind of, you know, uh, care. I think it's a good thing. When I was younger, on that community arts project I mentioned earlier on, today, Arts in Action, well, I had great teachers. Now, they never trained as teachers, and if you called them teachers, they probably wouldn't have reacted too well. But I think they were great teachers because they taught me an awful lot. They also taught me that you know, young lads living in a council house in North Liverpool, can be a photographer, can tell stories, you know, can be an artist. which well, we shouldn't sound too pretentious. Um, but, but why can't you be any of those things? You know, because the answer is you can.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, there are restrictions to it. Class is a barrier. You know, finance is a barrier. Uh, all those things are barriers. But that doesn't mean you don't have the talent to do it. What it, what it does mean, ultimately, is that uh, society ring fence and the restrictions often based on class or on gender for various reasons um, um that will happen may happen or will happen um but doesn't mean you can't do it doesn't mean you don't have the talent to do it and that and that to me is good teaching I think that's a good teacher that makes you go all right guys it's like we've got permission to think
0: yeah
2: um, so education to me is very very important so my kind of draw to education at the university and filmmaking is kind of similar in a way. It's not me on some kind of ego trip trying to tell these kids there's one way to do something and this is how you'll get a job. Because um, hopefully you will get a job. Um, but it's not about that. It's more about kind of trying to encourage the kids to think in a way in which they think about the world, not just about themselves where they fit in the world, and kind of what's going on in the world, mm. and what they do, make a difference. I'm not saying that they sh- I'm trying to teach um, a lot of young people and turn out a room full of kambodias. Um Not that that would be a bad thing, um, but, but that's what I'm trying to do. They are themselves, yeah what they want to be. But I think it's important, like when I went to art school or in the community arts project, is that there's people around you who go, have you seen this? Have you watched this? Have you listened to this? Just so you you go, wow, people do that. Like, God Save the Queen. I never knew the Queen actually was based on a situationist uh, montage, which was based on the Dardos montage. I didn't know that. Um, But now that I do know it, it opens up all sorts of doors. Where I can go and discover things. Also, mm. oh, there's a montage, there's something called a montage artist. And all of a sudden, you end up on the journey. So I think we education. I think what, what educators need to do isn't really necessarily telling kids, students, what to do, but really kind of opening doors and saying, have a look at this, think about this. And you may find something in this world that resonates with you. Or maybe it's like a light bulb moment where you go, wow. People do things like that. So to me, education is very, very important. And I think also as well, um, I mean, class is important to me um, in a big way. Um, You know, I think certain industries, you know, are dominated by a particular class. Um, And the film industry is a very middle class industry. Um, And, you know, it isn't a bad thing to let other types of people into that industry. Of course it isn't, you know, um, at all. Um, But I think, you know, maybe it needs to do a a better job at encouraging people from different socioeconomic groups into that world. Mm. In other words, when the film was premiered, and sometimes always never was premiered at the BFI um, Women Film Festival, one of the big debates around that week was about... um, kind of socio-economic groups in the film industry. Um, and it made me really, really happy to see that was on an agenda. People were talking about yeah. that. And what I really hope is that that conversation carries on and grows and makes it a much better, better place. Because I do think that it would be a better world if more people had the opportunity to take part in things,
0: yeah,
2: in, film, in filmmaking. In any, any industry, I think it'd be a better world if more people had access to these opportunities. If yeah. It was fairer. I think it would
0: just be better. Agreed. Um, and what's interesting as well, without being kind of too reductive, is that what your film shows is, is something which is It kind of flies in the face of the general assumption that you know people from a working class background are going to make a certain kind of art. You know, and it's just it's just it's just not true. And I think that education is a way of of kind of giving people the confidence to immerse themselves in art um, of all different kinds and and then and then do something rather than feel like they have to do a certain thing because they're from a certain background and I think that's what's really exciting about now particularly in kind of film and cinema is that is that is a conversation that is ongoing you know in terms of what is the what is the art made by working class people what is the art made by women what is the art made by black filmmakers? because then it's like well it's just like everyone else it's just like all the other art because it's because that's what art is you know um but it has its own voice but also it's part of a tradition and that kind of thing so i think it's really yeah it's really exciting um to do that and also i wonder if that's why there's a picture of ken campbell in the tailors you know uh on the wall (laughs)
2: yeah ken campbell um I can't believe you spotted that. Hold um, well um, The Ken Campbell photograph is, um, is a good story. Because um, when Bill uh, was in Rep, he was at the Everyman Theatre in Liverpool. So Bill was in Liverpool in the 70s for about seven years, I think, mm. or five years. But he was there with, with Jonathan Price, um, Ken Campbell, um, Jim Walters. So he was with Bobby Kane. You know, um, a great, great group of actors, yeah. uh, people Potter's race. Um, but Ken Campbell, I think he was the director of the Everyman those days, could be wrong. But Ken and Bill close friends, very close friends. Um, and uh, Ken famously was a real maverick yeah. you know, in old stories. But he was a real maverick. I never knew him by the way, I never met him. But he was a real maverick. Uh, Bill really looked up to him as, a, as a great friend and a great teacher. Back to education. Yeah. Uh, you know, Ken was a great teacher. Um, so, when we shot the tailor scene, um, we managed to track down a photograph of Ken Campbell. We had to frame and put in Bill's tailor shop just to make Bill. And when Bill saw it, it was very emotional actually.
0: I bet, yeah. It wow. Very
2: touched the yeah. um, So, the reason the Ken Campbell photograph is in the tailor shop. It was really a reference to Bill's uh, younger, the younger mm. Bill, who was training to be an actor in Liverpool, where Ken was his mentor, isn't
0: it? It's a nod to that. Oh, lovely! Well, it's a lovely nod. Um, yeah, and uh, sort of said said a lot to me uh, when I saw it there. So, um, yeah. Well, I guess the uh, that's that's a nice place to end. I think our uh, our chat. So um, yeah, thank you so much for uh, sort of reaching out. To, to come on the podcast. Um, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And uh, yeah, uh, well done on the film. I think, it's, I think it's really wonderful. I really loved it.
2: Well, thank you. Um, one thing I was going to mention, just go back to kind of uh, British cinema, uh, you know, which I'm a fan of. I you know, do like British cinema. Um, but I wanted to make something which felt un-British. Yeah. A very British film, with a very British cast, a very British crew, shot in a very British location. But I was keen to make it feel very well in British, which is what we picked up on. Um, I saw a film a number of years ago by uh, Karida um, uh, called uh, uh, Marobossi, which I may have pronounced that wrong, so apologies to anyone um, if I've offended anyone of by pronunciation. But Marabossi was uh, Karida's debut as a director because uh, Karida had had a history of making documentaries and then he made that leap into doing his first feature film. Um, and weirdly, in his first feature film, there's very, very few close-ups in him. And in fact, when you watch that film, have you seen the film?
0: Uh, a long time ago, yeah.
2: Well, the film is very... It feels quite distant. There's a kind of... Um, there's a dissonance mm. to the way that film was shot. Um, and I saw it on the cinema, uh, by accident, actually. Um, and when I saw this film... But I remember thinking, I've never seen that in cinema. The film feels slightly further away than it should and there's something about the grammar of the film which doesn't feel normal. Um, anyway, it turns out it's a very, great shooty close-up in that film. Mm. Uh, if, indeed yeah. if indeed ever. And when I was planning and thinking about Sometimes I Was Never, Marabosi was a big part mm. of that kind of process as well. And I did think about that kind of you know, career to brilliant filmmaker um, and that kind of leap he made with his directorial debut with making a film which kind of looks at film grammar and dismantles it mm. and says well let's try a different grammar yeah. let's try a different stats um, and that was on my mind a lot that was a big part of it um, in fact Danny Boyle sorry a name drop. Danny Boyle um, when he watched the um, rough cut for me and gave me some feedback which was so lovely of him. Another man is very generous with his time and his, yeah, his generosity. in a fellow. Um But he saw the film and he described it as idiosyncratic, beautiful and idiosyncratic. And that, I thought, yeah, I'm happy with that. Yeah. Danny Boyle thinks it's beautiful and idiosyncratic.
0: after my job well I think it is idiosyncratic and low key uh, in the best way you know a gentle film and I I mean those as compliments you know Um, but I do think that there is a kind of a a Britishness to it It, this is going to this might sound like an insult but I don't mean it like an insult but it reminded me of in parts, Camberwick Green and Trumpton I know which is such a weird thing but in terms of like you, you and then then I read your Polaroids which were sort of one of them sort of says about the Scandinavian otherness, and I yeah, thought actually, yeah. yeah, that that's what it is. It's this kind of it is this kind of composition, which is a distance as well, like the like the like old kind of British TV. But there's something about where everything is and and how every and the perspective of things. I think is what it, what I was thinking of. But it, it felt like that 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 those series, which are so strange, which feel like yeah, everyday life in Britain, but also not, also something quite strange and quite alien Um, so yeah that was a weird reference that sort of popped into my head um, that I wanted to sort of uh, have on record because I thought that was but it it does kind of think it speaks to a lot of what you're sort of saying there in terms of the way you're constructing an image and where people are in the frame and what's behind and almost those kind of rooftops outside the windows which are very yeah yeah, kind of basic shapes I guess I
2: wonder if you mentioned it, just thinking I wonder if that's to do with the fact that um, if you if you see something enough times you believe it to be true so I wonder if, in fact, through watching cinema and television a lot I wonder if we end up behaving in a way, kind of art we mimic art in a way so I wonder if we watch enough kind of the representation of Britishness. I wonder if we end up believing that's what we are, therefore that's how we behave. So maybe sometimes I is is the kind of, the kind of antidote to that. Maybe what it's saying is like, whatever you think we are, maybe we're not. Mm. Which I think is a Arctic Lincoln song, is it? One album? <laughs> um, might be wrong about that. Uh, no, it's um, no.
0: Well that, well, that speaks. Yeah, that whatever people say, I am. That's what I'm not. Which is the the Arctic Monkeys. Oh, but it always, But it's also. Um, isn't it Saturday night, Sunday morning as well? Albert Finney. That's what he says. That's,
2: I hope it's the front from that?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a quote. That's what he says. Um, which again brings us back to cinema, um, aptly, at the end. Well, I love um, that quote. The opening line is: uh, "Don't let the bastards grind
2: you down." sort uh, about establishing and announcing. yeah um, no great
0: film, great film. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, yeah, lovely, uh, lovely conversation with you. Thanks for thanks for taking the time. I know we've all got time, but still, it's nice to it's nice to actually make time and, and kind of get into, yeah, get into the filmmaking and, and kind of and cinema uh, in such a way. So, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
2: Well, thank you for inviting me to uh, the podcast.
0: Thank you so much to Carl for spending the time to talk to me. It was a really Really fun uh, and insightful conversation, and I hope people uh, enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, I had I had a really nice time talking to him. So, Dario, what did you make of the film and sort of bits and pieces of that conversation?
1: Yeah, really, really liked it. Actually, probably more than I expected. If I'm being really honest, I mean, if you look at the trailer and you kind of sort of read the synopsis and the you know the idea of what the film is just from just from a sort of quick summary, you'd might be like, mm, this might be a little bit sort of twee British, a little England type of representation, which I can kind of really leave a lot of the time. Um, I find that I find sometimes there's a little bit of wallowing in that, but in a sense, there is a there is a real kind of questioning, as we talked about beforehand, about what the changing nature of Britishness is, which which sort of underpins this almost monty python sort of a reserved type of monty python humor i think especially in the first half of the movie and the cast really does a good job i think of capturing what is a a a really kind of again hesitate to say the word but but offbeat and quite stylized at times again particularly in the first half where you have the, the the character of of bill nyer who is this sort of elegant uh insouciant english englishman and again he's sometimes you can feel that bill Nye's just doing the shtick but he's this this retired tailor and um he's got uh, a couple of sons but one of them has has disappeared and you as the film sort of develops you realize that he's got this incredible talent for scrabble and it's interesting how sort of scrabble again plays again part of this sort of Sort of iconography of not what Britishness is. If there's one game, I mean, is it is it Scrabble or Monopoly, Neil? Would you say that sort of represents? You know, it's that board game that's in the corner of every every household. It's uh, it's one of those, isn't it? Um, yeah, no, I think I think those both of those are
0: kind of yeah real emblems of Britishness. <laughs> I think you know. Yeah. Um, and,
1: yeah. And he's he, the beginning of the of the film he's he he's sort of going to he's trying to find his son and he ends up in the, the this hotel with his other son who's played by S- sam riley and they they end up in this conversation with uh another couple tim mckinnery and his wife played by jenny Agatha, and it's a really interesting setup because they end up in this kind of scrabble match and uh and and bill nye hustles tim mckinnery because of his knowledge of scrabble and and it's really interesting how this sort of power game emerges out of uh, these two characters and and really sort of tells you something about you know the idea of this this notion of british masculinity or, or is alluding to that and really really interesting sort of the way that that's that's set up stylistically in terms of what the the hotel looks like and there's there's shots of them travelling in the car and it's re- and it's rear projected quote unquote in a, in a way that makes it look like it's rear projected. So there's a there's a sense that there's a sort of constructed style going on here that underpins everything that that we're seeing, almost as if the director is kind of playing in the, on on this idea of what Britishness is. And then the film does sort of take a turn, doesn't it? Because he's he's at the they're at the hotel actually trying to see whether that this uh, dead body is is actually his long lost son you know not to give anything away they 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 move forward in the story leave that leave the hotel and the the rest of the film becomes this kind of relationship drama or family drama between him his wife who's played by alice lowe and then the uh, the youngest son who again is sort of trying to fit himself into the relationship with the with the father and his brother but then you know trying to find his own path in the world. So it's it's really interesting I think stylistically and is quite, you know, it's funny in a really offbeat way, but then is also quite pointed and dark as the way it it kind of develops and and yeah, I I, I think there's a, a lot more than perhaps meets the eye when you might first just look at a synopsis of the film, which is really I think why why it works so well.
0: That's really interesting that that kind of that scrabble uh insight there because i hadn't really kind of applied it to that area of the film um but i you know kind of completely agree that the film is is really interested in in masculinity and britishness and the kind of how those two are entwined and this kind of almost yeah kind of british empire idea of of the british man and and how under under scrutiny and kind of under not attack because you know um suggests a kind of defensive position from here but but how that has shifted and changed and very a lot of the film is about bill nye's character trying to control something which is where all control has been lost you know his family unit is kind of completely disbanded and dysfunctional and he's trying to kind of keep it all together and the film is very much designed in that kind of like hermetic world particularly Mm -hmm. like you say at the start and then it becomes more of a challenge to control it and that scene with the scrabble is it's it's a brilliant sequence but it it does speak to the this idea of the english language and its power and 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 wielding it kind of as as a power as he does with this kind of really funny nonchalant oh um like when he's hustling i mean it is like the hustler you know it's so yeah it is so so brilliantly deftly done the way he kind of yeah um shows his prowess with words and it's about understanding that kind of knowledge and um but of course none of the control you know none of the none of the tailoring none of the the kind of the management of 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 his life kind of can can bring his son back or can kind of keep the family from from not addressing the legacy of that and uh, yeah. it is interesting how the film becomes much less bound up by these kind of design um these kind of control design ideas and references as as it moves on into a space where they have to they have to kind of confront what, what's happened, and those three generations of men in the same family, I think, is a really interesting and smart way of doing that. Um, you know, and uh, and both the you know, Sam Riley's character is, is kind of the brother that's left behind and is constantly trying to get his father's attention, and at the same time, is kind of neglecting his own son because he's kind of doing this, you know, and it's it is a much smarter film than like you say, than it kind of appears on the surface, and there's something about the the underlying kind of themes in conjunction with the way it looks. And it just it looks so different to how British family dramas look. It's not social realism in any sense. You know, it's it's kind of Mike Lee's Live Sweep Times 10. You know, there's Gregory Crudson in there, there's, you know, kind of 90s Brit pop music videos in there, there's there's a whole lot of stuff going on. There's a whole mod theme.
1: And it's it's sort, re- it's sort of Ben Wheatley without the violence, isn't it? Yeah. you know what I mean it never gets to that point of of like you you fear that everything's gonna go off on one. do you know what i mean it's It never gets to that point because it's all sort of held inside with these characters but yeah but but
0: like you say similarly similarly with with Ben Wheatley, particularly these early things you you feel that the 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 filmmaking is drawing from a, a really wide and disparate source set of sources. You know, the, to, to 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 try and do something which feels different, and you know, we talked about that idea of what is kind of British cinema, and this doesn't necessarily look like British cinema, but yeah. it feels very British in many ways. Like you say, in terms of the themes and how it's how it's constructed, and that kind of balance of tones between the the kind of the light comic stuff, um, particularly the kind of like the reserved um, kind of stiff upper lip and kind of almost kind of snide to the side. Um that's a lovely scene where he's <laughs> Sam Riley's in the in in another room, it can still be heard, and Bill Nye's telling Alice Lowe, Sam Riley's wife, about, you know, all of this stuff about his brother's really about him. All of this stuff about his son is really about him. Mm. Within earshot, you know, it feels yeah. very very well. But again, I think, you know, it is should mention, we haven't mentioned it before, um that Frank Cottrell Boyce wrote the screenplay. So it's a again it's kind of it's it's got a real pedigree to it, um, that kind of elevates it above A lot of films that it would probably be compared with
1: yeah and it and and it does sort of keep that that sort of british sensibility of repression in place doesn't it i mean that's that's the whole thing about that nobody is really telling each other the truth apart from the moments where i mean it does happen but always always through a kind of context where it's not direct between two people so you'll say something to somebody within you know, and make sure the other person who you're talking about can be heard, but you won't say it to them directly. There's a lot of that kind of stuff going on. And I think it's really interesting as well the I mean, again that Bill Nye does does a really good job, I think, in conjunction with the um, with the son, with the grandson, sorry, who's played by Lewis Healy. In terms of that kind of trying to bring him, you know, sort of help him grow up and it's that beautiful moment where they they're trying on the suit as you say and that's where the the title comes from in terms of the buttons down the front of the suit the top one is sometimes middle always bottom never and it's it's kind of like that that presentation of of self of masculinity and and the the sense that that we've actually moved away from a time where fathers would would educate their sons in terms of dressing do you know what I mean it feels sort of yeah. kind of quaint in that in that way, and 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 the, yeah, the the middle son is obviously you know yearning for that from Bill Nye, and he's giving it to the to the to the grandson. So there's yeah, it's lots of interesting stuff going on, and I think it, you know with Jenny, but he Akerson, can't give it.
0: He can't give it to his son, can he? Because it's because it's his brother's. You know, his other son's. Yeah. Has, has, you know, and like you say, it's so it's so wound up in the grief that they're they're kind of that they're they're inhabiting about 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 the kind of the lost son which is kind of and it's also interesting uh, just that that scene is so lovely where he kind of dresses the grandson and the grandson wants to impress a girl yeah and he kind of well you know this you look sharp and you look like mods from the 60s yeah. you know and it's it's so weird that the idea of how you become a man is to sort of step out of time almost and, yeah you know there's there's so many lovely things going on yeah you were going to say that about jenny
1: Agatha. yeah i mean i just think that the that those those sort of characters again could be really overtly um written but I, and again th- th- this is a film about men let's not let's not beat about the bush there so that the women are playing wife characters but the way that they're they're played it's kind of like that you recognize and then it comes to the fore doesn't it where the way that these men have been all their lives has just in, in imprinted itself on the lives of these women and they just kind of haven't really even thought about that too much which is you know sort of typically sort of sort of uh giving a criticism i think of the way that the relationships can work particularly in, i think in in the uk where the the couples are not at all understanding what the other person is going through
0: yeah no absolutely brilliant casting from you know in terms of jenny, jenny Agatha and alice Lowe in order to be able to uh to kind of make that point you know um and give kind of agency to characters who by necessity of the story being about fathers and sons are kind of going to be on the periphery but they don't feel it because those they're just really good performers and they know how to make every kind of moment count um, when they're on screen
1: yeah and and Carl sent you over this huge batch of uh, of polaroids and scrapbook photos which I thought was really interesting sort of looking through them and you can really get a sense of the of uh, of the visual style that that he was kind of going for which I think you know it's it's it is taking sort of elements of that picture postcard thing you know it's set in Liverpool but you've got that kind of north northwest coast element to it by the seaside again which you know we could talk a lot about the way that British seaside culture is a kind of representation of this throwback era of of, of something that we maybe think about nostalgically or romantically when really it was never kind of that brilliant to begin with but the amazing images that he sent over
0: yeah just on, on that note it's, it was interesting to see a Liverpool film which kind of was always on the outskirts yeah. and then always into the periphery and really get the sense that both kind of him and Frank cottrell Boyce know and work and live in that place. You know, um, they know that kind of area and landscape very well, which is, is still quite rare in kind of regional British cinema because so much of the, the cinema that gets made within the regions is, is kind of tax break, you know, kind of facilitated. So... Mm. You end up shooting in places where you get a good deal and you get funding, but you don't necessarily you're not necessarily from that place. And this felt like a story that was from the place it was set, you know. uh, Which brings us back to kind of Mark Jenkins as well, you know, how Bait feels so connected to its locale. This again feels lived in in terms of even though it's designed, but just the way those that 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 kind of geography of the film and it it was unusual because like you see, you don't really see that part of the coast ever on film and the memories of British seaside holidays, even though there's very little of that in there, can't help but be conjured for people of a certain generation who mm. who spent their holidays kind of trekking to the coast of Blackpool or or wherever, you know, or kind of, you know, North Wales or you know, even like the Northeast or just the sense of what these places are really like, um, particularly when there's no there's no kind of tourist trade. Um, and what was kind of fascinating was, was seeing how the film looked and then being sent... Yeah, Carl's kind of working process, and and realizing how close his idea of the film was to the finished project. You know, in terms of when he'd go out and kind of and how the cinematographer kind of captured what Carl saw when he was out, kind of taking his photos. In terms of framing, light, color, and just that kind of askewness that's that's kind of that runs throughout the film. And the story he tells about Bill Nye and and kind of showing showing him that Polaroid. And Bill Nye saying that's the film I want to be in, you know. I think is is kind of testament to Nye, which I, I really love this film in terms of Bill Nye's performance because you've sort of said it before. He 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 often is kind of doing a shtick of some kind. And watching this, I realised actually, yeah, it's kind of people just wanting Bill Nye to do the Bill Nye thing, you know, which is a bit of love actually, essentially, yeah. you know. But he's a really really good subtle performer the way he holds his body the way he is in the space there's almost kind of spectral quality to him in the film which was really lovely and you could tell that he was on board with this film and and, and that it kind of the fact that it was evident for him in terms of why he wanted to do it and how he wanted to do it from from a polaroid kind of says a lot about about his kind of working on the project but also the ability that's in those in that kind of body of work that carl sent to actually create a kind of Blueprint for something which felt different and felt like okay. On the paper, I know what this film is, and I've seen it, and I, you know, had scripts like this before. But you're showing me something which is going to look and feel different. Um, and he just gets on board with it and, and delivers a really wonderful performance. And yeah, it's uh, it was really nice to you know, particularly for us because you know, and, and me in the sense of I'm interested in the process so much in terms of how and why filmmakers do what they do. So to see. To see that, and for Carl to be, able, you know, to kind of trust to share all that was, was really great. And we, um, he's given us permission to put the, the uh, a couple of the images up on the, the the show notes as well, so you can kind of see what we're talking about, which is which is great. Very kind
1: of him. Fantastic. And I just wanted to ask you, actually, in terms of the, the kind of structure of the film, because it's it does go in directions that you're kind of like it it it's sort of forcing you into realizing that that this isn't a formulaic film. So obviously, you know, when when films do things that are unusual structurally, you know that that often can be a turn off for people, or it's like it's not fitting into a mold that 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 a, uh, you know a spectator might think is you know is is working. So when there's sort of three specific sections and they take the film in 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 certain directions and do things with the characters that you wouldn't ordinarily do with your protagonists in terms of kind of like shifting focus. Um, and also, as you say, in sort of in sort of stylistic, I mean, the first first sort of third is is very is very kind of non-realist or, or you know even surrealist really. But then it does become much more of a of a kind of family drama. I just wondered, as a screenwriter yourself, what you thought of the way that that kind of put together how the story was was put together in that way.
0: Well, yeah, thanks for asking that. um i Appreciate that because it is something that I I think about a lot and uh, kind of. Kind of carries over from my screenwriting into my sort of screenwriting teaching and yeah it it is a film where a lot of the turns it takes are not the conceived wisdom of how a, a screenplay should be constructed you know this is a really a narrowing down in those sections you know the, the, the world of the film kind of shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and in the first even though there's only sort of Sam Riley and Bill Nye in, in the first kind of section and Jenny Agata and tim mckinney you get the sense that they're out in the world and they're looking for the brother and that they're part of something whereas normally a film kind of becomes more and more part of an external journey or whatever and the, the journey in this film just kind of just narrows down to the family all being surrounded by each other and then eventually just the two characters kind of wrestling with with kind of what's going on you know the, the father and son it, it is unexpected but it's unexpected in a in a in the sense of what we've been led to believe a script should do but but it doesn't feel unexpected when you're watching it because Mm -hmm. these characters are so richly drawn and the relationship between them is so richly drawn that you go with it because you believe that that's what those characters are going through and that's the that's the direction they're being pulled and I always believe that the character is what drives everything else and this idea that you then or that you then you create a structure and then kind of plonk characters in and get them to hit certain targets just really frustrates me and This idea that there's a history of screenwriting that you can call on, I think is deeply flawed. Anyway, you know, in the history of how films have been written, even in Hollywood up until the '70s, you know, all these kind of masterpiece scripts that get dissected all the time were not written how how they're taught. You know, Mm -hmm. they they were written by teams. They were written under deadlines. They were written, you know, just in sequences. You know, sort of you write ten pages and then then let's film those ten pages. Then write another. You know, there's so many kind of contexts which come into screenwriting that. That are kind of ignored in this kind of i this guru idea you know this kind of and this, which has become the industry idea that one person sits down and writes a three-act film with a journey that builds and builds and builds and is a big revelation and you know that doesn't happen here and it's all the more interesting because of that which is probably why it's more of a, a kind of a niche proposition because there's still this idea that a film has to do other things in order to be quote-unquote successful but the the journey that these characters go on feel rooted in this world and it's really meaningful the way that that, that story is told and I for one am I'm always pleased to, to kind of be confronted particularly with British or American films that are so character driven um, and this feels like both character driven and deeply cinematic even though it's not a traditional three act structure kind of hero's journey movie and I never think that's a bad thing, um, I just wish that, that there was more of a sense of inquisitiveness and curiosity from audiences in terms of kind of standing up for those kind of films than just assuming that oh well unless there's a 45 minute battle scene at the end or a big chase or airport kind of you know mad dash and there is a little bit of that kind of playing around i think frank cotra boys kind of plays around with that idea in a lovely little sequence um towards the end of the film this kind of quasi chase of sorts um but again, you kind of know where the you kind of know what what's going to happen. You kind of know what the the ending is going to be. What the kind of the what Bill Nye's character is going to find at the end of this short kind of quest, and that's okay. You know, like it's about him admitting what he knows. It's not about everyone in the audience kind of having this big revelation. It's about watching a character come to terms with what they already know, which is not going to make for necessarily the most dramatic kind of cinema if you're looking at kind of explosions and chases but it's certainly a kind of moving moving into the film watching a character wrestle with grief and admit that the child that they've been looking for is is never coming back you know yeah um that found it very moving you know that, that that the film kind of able to withstand the pressure to do something else
1: yeah and i think you know it's part of the reason really isn't it why we 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 wanted to talk about the film i mean this is it was shown you know a couple of years ago so it's not something that that's come out with a big bang and obviously i think it's been released recently just you know for for, it it, it's content out there that's that's good and it's managed to get a, a a release and people can 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 stream it now no problem but it's it's so interesting that that you know we you don't see this kind of thing that much it's not ken loach it's not guy Ritchie, it's not richard curtis roger Mitchell. you know what i mean and and yeah th- that in many ways is the sort of <laughs> the anchoring points of british cinema these days you know don't get me wrong there's so much great british talent out there but it's working on so much of it is working under the the umbrella of hollywood and i i just think that this this kind of movie is not going to get a you know a big audience because of the the structural organization of the of the industry i mean we we were talking the whole of last year about how amazing what happened to Bait was, it was just like unprecedented. And uh, yeah, it's just nice to talk about a British film in this way.
0: Yeah, and like, you know, it is important if we can get a few more people to to go and see it. I think that one of the things when I'm teaching screenwriting is, is a kind of constantly reminding students, which can always seem a bit negative. But but it's, it's true that most of the people who read scripts or kind of work in film don't really know what they're looking at. You know, they, they they kind of use the the very, the very kind of broad, general, mainstream signifiers of you know what a what a thing should be, and then kind of try and package it and promote it in that way. And so many films fall through the cracks and, and take years and years to be discovered, because you know people working in certain departments of certain companies don't really watch cinema. They don't watch, and so they they watch a film that, like you sort of said from the synopsis, feels like oh, I should know what this is, and then. You watch sometimes or was never, and it's not that. It's something else. It's something on its own terms. Most people who read that script will kind of think it's one way. Then you look at Carl's Polaroids, and it's like, oh, actually, you want to make... I don't understand what that is. You know, this script should be a, you know, a kind of Ken Loach social realist drama about a father and a son. It's like, well, I want it to be something else. And it's it's it is important to for us to do our bit, and we've talked about that quite a lot over the last couple of years, haven't we, in terms of the kind of projects we want to talk about and films we want to shine light on other the ones that might... My- this this kind of long form treatment because people don't really get it you know um and it's so nice to be able to to watch a film you've never heard about and it it to kind of to to lead to such a discussion um it's as much fun for us as hopefully it is for the the people that we have on and then the people listening
1: lovely well yeah i really enjoyed it that's for sure i hope uh this encourages our listeners to go out and check it out because it is you know, just on on that fundamental level, it's an enjoyable film to watch. It's something you can sit down on a on a Saturday night and really, you know, you and get into as a piece of entertainment in and of itself. You know, beyond all of the the sort of wider context we've we've talked about. So uh, hopefully, it will get some more watches.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a, that's a so it's a good a good point to end on there because I think it is. You know, we've been in, enjoying kind of unpicking it and kind of getting into, it, but on a fundamental level, it is just a really. A really good movie with great performances and nice writing and it looks great with a good score so
1: yeah so that will do it for episode 103 if you take a look over at our patreon page you'll see that our bonus content is on there we just released a um, recent newsletter and a bonus chat and we still have a couple of episodes to come there's an interview i did with the uh, film editor katie Breyer. And talking about her work on maiden and on a film called bruce lee and the outlaw which is again another one really worth checking out and then we are looking to put on a final episode we've got a few ideas about what that's gonna look like but um hopefully something interesting and very special to come neil really enjoyed it as usual
0: yeah really enjoyed that conversation and uh, yeah glad that glad that you liked the film as well it's always nice when both get introduced to a film that we both enjoy and uh, looking forward to catching up over the next couple of episodes.
1: Great. So, uh, yeah, our audience out there, please get in touch with us on Twitter at Cinematologists on the email Cinematologist at gmail.com. Once again, this has been The Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening.